Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. Today I'm speaking with Richard Bartlett. Richard is founder of multiple decentralized organizations, including the Hum Team and Spiral and Lumio. We talk about practical anarchism, the Occupy movement's experiments in democracy, escaping domination and coercion, debt, livelihood pods, and the future of work. You can follow Richard on Twitter at Rich Decibels and keep tabs on the show at Agora underscore politics. As always, if the show is valuable for you, then you can signal your appreciation and invest in more conversations like these by dropping a tip on agorapolitics.com. We're accepting Bitcoin and Ethereum. Now, I give you Richard Bartlett. Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me to here today is Richard Bartlett. Richard is uh, Richard Decibels, uh, Rich Decibels on Substack on Twitter uh, and Twitter. He's also the co-founder of The Hum Team, a practical guide for decentralized organizations, Inspiral, a network for people working on stuff that matters, and Lumio, where organizations and communities turn discussion into action and shared understanding. Richard, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. I'm really, really excited about uh, our conversation today. I'm not exactly sure where it's going to go, but given your experience uh, and your uh, you know, ventures in decentralized organizations, I'm very excited to ask you about some topics that, uh, that are very, very close to my audience and very close to many of the guests that I've had on the show. Um, but before we get into that, Richard, uh, do you want to just give a brief overview of uh, sort of who you are, your background, and how you sort of got into this scene? Sure. Um, I don't know how brief I'll be. I'll try. Um, I'm from New Zealand. Um, and I left about five years ago, and now I'm currently living in Italy. Um, I grew up on a farm in, in a very remote part of a remote region in the remote country, <laughs> you know, like really in the middle of nowhere. And I was raised in a very old-fashioned religious community, not a cult, but very kind of strict, dogmatic, fundamentalist church. Um, and then I kind of left the small town and went to university, studied engineering, got a degree, graduated 2008, financial crisis, kind of had five minutes of a real job and then suddenly was unemployed. Um, and kind of spat out into the world. I'd left the church at that point and, and um, yeah, I was made unemployed very shortly after becoming educated. And so I was really lost, you know, I had a, had a um, drifting around phase. That was kind of my sex, drugs and rock and roll phase, I guess. Um, and, and finally kind of landed and got oriented through activism, I guess, um, most notably through the Occupy movement. So um, Occupy Wall Street reached all the way down to Wellington in New Zealand. And I kind of stumbled into the camp there and it became a really, you know, major, major turning point in my life. I, I was really, um, yeah, playing, playing one, of the, one of many, but one of the central roles in that community for a couple of months and um, got to practice 
direct democracy on the streets with a bunch of other citizens uh, for a few months, you know, and, and, and partly in the political philosophy side of, of what do we stand for, what's going on in the world, what do we think about it, what should we do about it? Um, and also in the very practical, logistical, where are we going to sleep? Where's the food coming from? What do we do about safety? All those kind of questions. So that experience of spending a few months with an ad hoc community, you know, a little village in the middle of a city, um, governing ourselves through deliberation, through direct democracy, was just incredibly developmental for me, um, both in terms of my intellect, but also, I think, more importantly, in my character. You know, it, it kind of changed who I am in some important ways. And it was really intense and really high highs and really low lows. And after that, you know, the, that was a movement, right? It was a wave. So Occupy kind of um, went back underground or disintegrated or became the zombie apocalypse or however we describe it. Um, and me and my buddies wanted to keep something of that movement alive. And that's where Lumio came from. So Lumio was a, it still is, but when we started, it was like basically how do we take that deliberative decision-making mode out of the street, out of the square and put it into a digital space so that it's more accessible, more, um, you know, portable, more adaptable to different contexts, more available for more different kinds of people. So we started a software project. Um, it was kind of the right idea at the right time. We got a cool team together. We got some cool funding and, and, and I really had fun more than just building the software, building a company that reflected a radical set of values. So a more or less kind of anti-capitalist company. It's a really fun thing to do, um, fun set of challenges. And after about five years of putting everything I got into Lumio, um, I got a bit, basically I got a bit bored with software. You know, it's like um, software is interesting, but it's a very, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of narrow scope of problems that you can solve by moving buttons around on a screen. There's a whole bunch of other problems out there that involve much more, um, yeah, you know, just complexity, more, more strategic thinking and um, more interpersonal dynamics and um, power building and all these kind of other uh, questions took my interest. And so that's when we started the HUM. And the HUM is basically like a, sometimes we call it like a um, management consultancy for organizations without managers. Mm -hmm. so, so groups that are trying to work without a traditional hierarchy, they often have a hard time. And because we've got a bunch of experience with how to do that, um, we help them figure it out. Um, so that's my job now, really, is, is practical anarchism. It's, it's like training people in how to, how to come out of patterns of domination and, and actually be effective. How do, how do you be an effective organization when you don't have someone with coercive authority to tell everyone what to do? Turns out it's quite different because most of us were raised in the context of coercive authority. And so... Um, that's where my interest now is, is in, in this kind of, sometimes I, I call myself like a hobby psychologist, you know, getting into um, people's conditioning and their beliefs and their, their instincts and behaviors and stuff and, and trying to help them change for something that's more collaborative and, yeah, uh, genuinely democratic. Hmm. That's the short version. Yeah, well, I have so many questions that I'd like to ask just off of that brief uh, introduction alone, um, but... I guess uh, right away, uh, I wanted to briefly touch on Occupy um, because that is sort of a movement that sort of came and went and disappeared uh, and seems to have been, uh, in my opinion, not properly digested by the culture uh, quite yet. It doesn't seem to me that we really even understand what exactly that was about. 
um, why it failed, um, what you know the the goals were that it didn't achieve. Um, and it's interesting as well that uh, the the decentralized projects and organizations that you got involved with uh, were offshoots of that. What lessons did you learn from the failures of the Occupy movement that were integrated later on into your work? Uh, I, I'm having a little reaction to this framing about Occupy failing. Well, because um, that's that's a really popular narrative, mm -hmm. um, and and I think more than anyone, it's been people on the left that have that have told the story about how Occupy failed. Um, I certainly didn't fail. Uh, you know, it was like an incredibly developmental experience for me and for the people around me, and I and I see it as having made a major contribution to the people that I know personally, uh, the course of their life. And, and for me, that's enough. You know, I, um, we were having conversations about what would it be like to live in a world beyond capitalism. We didn't make that happen. So in that sense, we failed, you know, to get rid of capitalism. But I don't, um, it's, uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know how useful the, the failure framing is, but I do absolutely agree with your sense that the important lessons that hasn't been fully digested, um, and 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 I'd love to I'd love to digest it. I'd love I'd love that. Like um, I, I often compare it to in New Zealand, there was a movement um, way back in the eighties. Basically, you have this uh, New Zealanders love rugby, and there was a, a protest movement around rugby. So you've got the New Zealand All Blacks playing against the South African Springboks. And in South Africa at the time, you've got apartheid. And so some people start saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't be involved with, we should be boycotting South African sports teams because of the apartheid. And that in the 80s in New Zealand, that was kind of like the most potent kind of um, source of, of conflict. And, and it was where the, the subculture was really suddenly visible, like, wow, there's these people that oppose, that think we should interrupt our sports for political reasons. Mm. And it was, a, it was a really significant movement of trying to stop the South African tour through New Zealand. And for the, a few years after that movement, it was widely regarded as a failure in the sense that they didn't stop the tour. You know, the games went on eventually. They were interrupted by, you know, various things, but they never, they didn't actually completely stop. But in its maturity 30 years later, uh, and now when we're like 40 years later almost, in its maturity, when the role that that movement plays in New Zealand political context is like now they'll ask if there's a new potential political candidate, say a prime minister or something, their opinion on that tour uh, at the time mm. is used as a, a litmus test for like, yeah, the test of their character. Um, and, and, and retrospectively, it's become this, this watershed moment where it says, were you for or you're against? And, and if you were for, then we know something about who you are and what you believe. Um, so I wonder if something similar might happen with Occupy, that it takes 20 years or 30 years to really fully digest that, that, the, that we're, you know, we are really, really in this phase, it seems. Uh, you know, what you said about Occupy failing, that's not just you inventing that, right? Like that's a, that's a, a, a meme, that's a story that's really popular. Um, but I think the fully digested story will have something else in it some 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 more ingredients in it and if i was the boss if i was the boss of history um the story that i'd emphasize there is about democracy it's about 
we did an experiment in democratic decision making and we learned a lot and it seems really important democracy prior to occupy my experience of democracy was like a kind of uh bureaucratic lifeless uh quite ineffective system of occasionally voting for something you know it was like this really dull meaningless concept to me after occupy democracy is like the most important thing that I can think of just about. It's this like essential pulsating, lively developmental experience. Um, and that that discovery of what real democracy actually feels like and what it's good for, uh, I'd love it if that was the story that we remembered from Occupy, you know? Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting about Occupy is that it really was a global movement. Um, you know, it started in New York City, but, uh, you know, as you said, it got all the way, all the way to New Zealand, which is just about as far around the world as you can get. And um, I was here uh, in Michigan at the time. I was actually in, uh, in middle school and in high school uh, at the beginning of, of the Occupy movement in 2008 and 2009. Um, and the years after that, and, you know, I remember there being an uh, Occupy encampment uh, down here in, in, in Lansing at the Capitol. And uh, I actually went there and, uh, you know, I interviewed some people uh, there and I wrote a story up for it uh, for a journalism class that I was doing at the time because it was like, well, this is the most interesting thing politically that's happening. And, um, you know, for me, at least, especially uh, being in the Midwest, this was an area that was very, very hard, hard hit with the recession. And so there was a lot of uh, a lot of economic instability, a lot of, uh, you know, small businesses going under a lot of people losing their jobs that they did not get back. Uh, and in general, there was uh, a feeling of of real betrayal and distrust that sort of permeated the culture. Uh, and, you know, I was definitely uh, involved in sort of uh, on the fringes of kind of leftist politics at that point in time. Um, and the Occupy movement, when I say there was a failure, um, Yes, it's true that that's like a very common narrative and it is kind of a meme. And I think you're right as well that it's more often brought up by by people on the left, uh, oddly enough. Um, I think really what that's getting at is more that, that there were it, it, it's not just, you know, people always say, well, it didn't it didn't work as well as maybe it could have or it didn't achieve objectives uh, because it was leaderless. Right. That's always sort of the the thing that there needed to be this linchpin, some sort of figure that everyone could kind of rally around. And if there had been, or there had been more of them perhaps, uh, or, or more charismatic ones that, uh, maybe it would have achieved its objectives. And so it really becomes the critique of Occupy really becomes a repudiation of this notion that decentralized organization or a kind of anarchy, um, in terms of democracy can actually be functional and can actually reach um, tangible ends. Uh, how have you found in trying to facilitate decentralized communities and organizations, how have you found um, ways of getting around this sort of classic leadership problem? Because humans do have this sort of tribal wiring in us where we do want to tend to uh, coalesce around leadership. And so without leadership, uh, you run into all kinds of coordination problems. How have you found ways of solving those problems? Um, 
both, you know, there's, there's problems with leadership as well, right? There's with, with mm-hmm. the, 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 the reason that I bought into the Occupy leaderless story was it made sense to me that a, if you had an identifiable leader of a potent movement that was really about disrupting power and, um, yeah, interrupting capitalism and, and doing something a lot more equitable, it would just seem so obvious to me that those leaders would come under such an extreme attack um, that it kind of, you know, that's, that's kind of like the problem on the other side of the fence, right? Like, I, I, um, whenever there's a challenge of coordinating a group of people, there's going to be so many paradoxes and, and difficulties in it. Um, and, and maybe what we were doing with Occupy was, uh, yeah, testing the limits of what happens when you try to work without a, without a designated figure who has this like special role, who's the boss or the founder or the manager or the whatever. Um, and at the time, I think definitely for myself and probably for a bunch of the other people involved, I had a very naive attitude about it, you know, that, that it was my first kind of contact of, well, observing hierarchy as an object, you know, instead of being inside of it and being subject to it, but actually, um, you know, I'd never been in an organization that was non-hierarchical before. So I'd never noticed there was a thing called hierarchy. Um, and, and the naivety of it was, we're going to call ourselves leaderless. Therefore there's no leaders. Um, you know, there's no one has a designated role. There's no, there's no organizational chart, which you can point to and say, well, clearly this person's in charge. And, and somehow we thought that by removing that explicit layer, um, that was going to somehow equalize power. And, uh, we learned the hard way, of course, that power is a lot more nuanced and sticky and um and sometimes kind of you know subtle and hidden than than the particular role that we put on an organizational chart and so subsequent to that and and my work with you know yeah it's been it's been now a decade that i've been working basically entirely with organizations that are non-hierarchical or less hierarchical um we've learned a lot and and a lot of it comes down to refining complexifying and adding nuance to our ideas about organizations so it's it, it, the naive version was you can either be vertical or horizontal you can be hierarchical or non-hierarchical and now the more complexified is like yeah you hear me talk about decentralization meaning um not that there is no center but that the center is being pushed outwards you know that there are multiple points of uh, influence and and nodes of connection and they're moving and um and they're we're intentionally going to the edges and trying to draw them inwards and we're trying we're looking where the concentrations of power are and trying to push it outwards but it's complex it's a mess you know it's this it's it's a network it's not a triangle um you'll also hear me talk about coercion and domination mm-hmm. and and those are the things i think that are the, the for my particular brand of anarchism, whatever credentials I've got left as an anarchist these days, which is not very much, but um, whatever anarchism I've got, it's about it's about domination. It's about looking for ways of relating to each other without domination. And now, as I as I've matured in my understanding, that doesn't mean leaderless. It does. It's like I've been in groups where there is someone that has a designated leadership role, and I don't feel that I'm being dominated by following their lead. You know, and and to be able to decouple those things um, has been really helpful for me to understand. There's all different flavors of power, and some of them are unhealthy. 
and some of them are actually fine you know so like one of the examples i give is in the context of hospitality if you're a guest in my house there's a power dynamic there you know it's really uh, it, it, it's actually completely natural in, in every culture that i've ever encountered that the host has a kind of power over the guest but it's not over the guest it's in support of the guest it's 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 um an attitude of service and consideration and taking care of and, and giving care to the guest and the guest is under there's a kind of mutual obligation that's happening there and that's a that's an example of a kind of power relationship that many people have encountered and and been delighted by you know and not not seen it as a problem or a concern and so there are yeah i found it really helpful to kind of uh, notice these kind of examples of when power difference can be healthy and generative and fun and enjoyable um and then say well can we do that in organizations too can we have the concept of a host and a guest in an organization or maybe it's uh, clearer to say like um an initiator or a founder or someone who is holding a certain um part of the enterprise here and that they're taking that hospitality attitude to their role rather than the domineering attitude. And, and can we, as a group, have conversations about the way that power is being exercised here and the difference between healthy and toxic power and that sort of stuff. Then it just requires a lot more unpacking and getting into the detail with each other and making the implicit explicit, drawing it up into the above the surface and, and being able to, um, yeah, talk about our experiences. When have you felt like, the power dynamics have been healthy and when have you felt like they weren't healthy well that's a very vulnerable conversation to have so mm. you need to invest in creating really high trust relationships where people feel they can actually be honest with each other and they're not going to be punished you know they're not going to face some kind of sanctions for saying well actually you know i think rich is really taking up too much space here and he's uh, you know his ego is running running um out of check and we need to re we need to rebalance like it's a hard thing for someone to say um to 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 challenge someone who's holding a lot of power and influence but it's absolutely essential that those kind of conversations can happen if you're going to approach a more equal a more healthy way it's interesting that you uh described leadership or uh sort of the healthy version of leadership there because i think um i think people that are more right-leaning who are more in favor of hierarchy as sort of a fundamental in it really inescapable structure uh would argue that uh, a hierarchy properly constituted is characterized by that kind of leadership. And it's only when a hierarchy has been corrupted that you get this, um, this sort of brutal domination. Um, when you talk about uh, getting out, getting into relationships not centered around domination, uh, are you specifically talking about coercion? Or is there uh, something, um, you know, because uh, you, you are also talking about submission as well, right? Like proper submission to the just, let's say the just leader, right? Or the just king um, would be able to, you know, in theory, um, not demand the, uh, you know, the allegiance or the submission of their, of their, of their subjects or whoever it is that they're happen to be in charge of, but uh, would actually earn that right and would actually have it voluntarily given. Um, and so is this, is, is the core difference here for you really about coercion? 
that's a big piece of it and and it's one that i it's you know if, if i had kind of like a um a mind map of my own political philosophy which i don't uh, i'm a lot more vague than that um but coercion and 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 questions of like agency and consent are pretty close to the center for me freedom agency consent and then coercion being the violation of consent um that that's pretty essential to me um maybe the useful way to frame it well what has been useful for me a lot is is um i don't know if you know the work of rian eisler but i've really um gotten a lot of insight from her framing which is basically that she sets up a spectrum and on the one hand you have the domination submission pattern and on the other hand you have partnership and uh spectrum meaning you know you can be anywhere more or less like you know there's a whole range of options in there and that that uh her framing accounts for fractal levels of scale as well so it could be the way that you and i relate to each other could be more domineering or more partnered um, but also the relation between different countries and everything in between mm. um and so yeah yes coercion is like an obvious sign of uh there's a dominating there's a domination happening when someone is someone's freedom is limited by someone else's exercise of their freedom that's obvious um but i think there are more dimensions to throw in there you know so like uh the time dimension is an important one for me so the king you mentioned you know the just king well i haven't i haven't yet come around to the idea of a king and one of the reasons is because a king is a is a position for life right and it's not it's not just infinite in time it's also um across all domains and all contexts it's like if you're in my land i'm the top of all of the hierarchies and that just seems a completely idiotic structure <laughs> well not completely idiotic that's dumb there's there's definitely some value in it it's it's worked um but it seems really subpar suboptimal the kinds of hierarchies that I feel comfortable in are limited in time and limited in domain. You know, so, so when I want to, when I've got a question about programming, I'm an incredibly junior programmer. I'm pretty crap at it. And there are many people that obviously have a lot more expertise than me. And I'll go to them and say, hey, what would you do in this situation? Um, uh, when I can freely choose who that I'm, who that I'm looking to, uh, as someone who is higher up the hierarchy than me, as in someone who has more knowledge or that I respect more, if I've got the freedom to choose who that I'm looking to, and also when they have a question about, yeah, decision-making protocols for groups, they might come to me, you know, that, we're, that we have these different domains and that over time I can, I've got the freedom of association, right? Like I can, I can chop and change and move. That, uh, that feels a lot healthier and a lot closer to the partnership model the partnership model being we're different we have different competencies and that we cultivate relationships of yeah we get to know each other we understand what everyone's good at and that we can turn to each other in different contexts um but once that becomes kind of baked into a position where it says ah you're the you're the boss of this organization or you're the king of this land um and it starts to creep out and cover more and more domains and get a longer and longer time frame it seems more likely to be, um, yeah, inviting in that dominator pattern, you know, that which I believe is part of our biological inheritance. Well, 
I like that you brought up there not that uh, that this domination dynamic uh, spans not only across space but also time. I think that's a, a dimension that people don't often think about when they think about these things. Um, the fact that I mean, even just uh, on the basis of of most people having an employer, their time is dominated by someone else. Their time is fundamentally not their own, uh, it, it, at least in, insofar as they have committed to a, a contract that uh, that has those stipulations. Um, and, and so I see that, you know, you have ventured out and found your own ways to be successful um, outside of sort of the standard um, paradigm of uh, of uh, making a living for oneself. Um, how, how do you think about, you know, this issue of what what all of us would call the rat race or the, the fact that everyone is sort of by the, by virtue of really the economic structure that we're embedded within. Um, not everyone, but the vast majority of people uh, don't have as many options as far as controlling their time and what they do on a daily basis. Uh, and obviously the internet and various tools uh, that come along with that have done a lot to free up more people to have different opportunities for creating those things. But how do you think about, you know, what this, what we're calling the creator economy or various iterations, even decentralized organizations like, like yours or like Gumroad's one of the bigger ones. Um, we are, especially with the acceleration of at-home work caused by the pandemic, it does seem like this trajectory is not only where we're going inevitably, but also, uh, it seems to be going much faster, which which I think is good for all of us who would like to get out of uh, having someone else, you know, control our every minute of every day. How do you think about the future of work? Yeah, great question. Um, I think the the big headline is about meaning and connection. So, um, uh, it seems to me so far from my life experience that one of the things that makes a good life is a sense of meaningful work. And that doesn't have to be a job, you know. It just means that uh, when you have a role that you feel uh, fits your competence and where you feel that you're making a meaningful contribution, um, that, seems, that seems to be an essential quality of life factor, you know. So um, at the moment, I get a lot of my meaning from feeling like I've got something unique to add to the questions about organizations. Um, maybe when I'm 95, my meaning will be getting up out of my rocking chair and watering the plants every couple of days, and that'll be as much as I can contribute, but it will, I can still see how that would um, be a satisfying contribution, you know? So that, that concept of meaningful work to me is really one of the essential pillars of it. And, um, what I'm trying to illustrate there is that it's also very subjective, you know, that it's up to me to figure out what's meaningful to me. It's, it's, it's local to my own competencies and, and, and it's relevant to uh, the people around me as well. It's, it's, it's kind of a relation with the other people around me of, I want to contribute something to something that's bigger than me. I want to be, I want to be um, a node in a network. You know, I don't want to just build a little empire for myself, but I want to be connected with others. And that connection piece is, yeah, I think about it in terms of like mutual aid and solidarity. So 
my context coming from New Zealand, I have that sort of big picture mutual aid of growing up in a country that has a little bit of socialism left in it. So that meant uh, I could count on having a bare minimum of income paid to me when I didn't have a job. Um, and a lot of my friends were in a similar circumstance. We were getting uh, this little trickle of money from the government. And it was because of that, that we could afford to take the risk to start Lumio. You know, that there was a time where we weren't getting any income um, from this venture that we were dreaming up, but we were getting paid in the background from the state and that just covered our bare living expenses and it gave us the freedom to iterate. So uh, the freedom to experiment. So when I started traveling around the world and being in countries where there isn't that kind of social safety net, it really <laughs> reset my expectations a little bit um, because it made me realize how, how much creativity that enables, you know, knowing that you're not going to um, lose your house or go hungry um, just because you don't have a job for a little while, a paying job. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't think that, for instance, people in the States are going to somehow pull a political maneuver and suddenly have a great socialized uh, welfare system where everyone is looked after. I don't think that's a, a very likely short-term goal, but um, a more realistic short-term goal is getting that kind of solidarity at a smaller scale. So maybe you're not going to get the whole country organized, but um, maybe you can find 30 people who are in a similar context to you um, and you can pull some of your resources and take care of each other, whether that's the concrete financial support or it's the more sort of emotional, psychological stuff of, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm participating in this like creator economy, gig economy, precarious, I'm one of these precarious workers. Um, maybe we can support each other uh, just through the process of what is it like to be one of those workers and how do you deal with that insecurity and, 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 and how do we get support? So that's what we've been doing with the Inspiral Network is basically a bunch of independent workers coalescing together into these little clusters. And um, there's, the, there's the kind of uh, low level support of, we have conversations about what it's like to be a freelancer and we share tips with each other. We share opportunities and, you know, how do you be productive when you don't have a boss and these kind of questions. Um, but then the deeper engagement is when you really get to know a couple of people and you build up a relation of trust and you see that you've got complementary skills, um, we basically form into these very lightweight worker cooperatives. We call them a livelihood pod. And the pod is a space where you can share some of your income with each other to take out the peaks and troughs of being an autonomous worker. So you get something a bit more like a salary because we're sharing the load with each other. And that... I don't know how realistic that is, or if we are just a little marginal case with a couple of hundred people, you know, who like doing these kind of experiments. Um, but I would love it if that was the future of work, you know, was that you have the meaning piece where people are doing stuff that seems useful and they, they feel their heart is engaged somehow. And they're not just doing it because they have to, and they've got no other option, but to do some task that feels really menial to them. Um, and that they have the solidarity, that they're in collaboration with other people, that they're sharing the highs and lows and, and growing together through that process. That would be a pretty awesome future for me. Definitely. Uh, it's interesting that it's sort of like a, almost like an insurance policy. You know, the original, at least here in the United States, a lot of our original insurance companies were actually started by small communities during the Great Depression, farming communities, uh, because they literally, there was no, there was no government, you know, in, until later on in, in, uh, 
in FDR's uh, administration. But in the beginning, there was no real government help for these people during the Great Depression. And so what you had is you had these small farming communities who did exactly what you're talking about as happening in the online space, which is that they sort of pooled their resources together and they shared with one another. And uh, out of that came like real companies that are now um, quite the opposite of that. But anyway, so th that's sort of the unfortunate way in which some things tend to evolve. But um, uh, I'm going to make it a little bit personal here because I'm in sort of a transitionary period in my life right now as well. So I lost my job back in January. Uh, and um, since then, I've been sort of, uh, you know, working on the podcast, but also retraining and other skills, um, doing a bit of programming. And I just signed uh, last week, my first ever freelance development contract. Uh, and so now I'm doing that uh, for the time being. But my issue is, uh, uh, well, one, most of the creative endeavors that I'm working on, things like podcasting, writing, other things along those lines, aren't really generating any income. Um, but in addition to that, uh, I also, because uh, I'm coming from uh, the United States' education system, have a huge amount of student debt. And so this debt that I have to pay back actually severely limits uh, my optionality in terms of freedom. It means that I have to have a substantially larger amount of income coming in uh, in order to sort of sustain myself. And, and, and so that makes sort of the, you know, the digital nomad lifestyle or even just subsisting on a, a relatively small income uh, much, much more difficult. Uh, and, and at the moment, it's sort of forcing me, you know, I sort of waver between going back into the workforce and not, you know, this contract that I'm on right now is going to be up uh, at the end of the month. And then if I want to keep doing freelance work, I'm going to have to find something after that. So there is this problem of, you know, if you're out there doing things on your own, you kind of have to still find your next meal, um, depending on what structures you have in place. Uh, and so uh, how do you how do you think about debt? Because I think like debt is one of the tools that is most used to sort of reinforce this coercive structure and to keep it in place. Because when you have a debt that's owed to someone, uh, that that means that your time is not your own because you're going to be spending your time in order to pay back someone else. Uh, and so, uh, when when people talk about central banks, when people talk about you know. Uh, the monetary system, even even like you know, Bitcoiners will get into this a lot. Uh, the fact of the matter is that for all, as long as we've been doing commerce, debt has been a tool people have used to control people. You're even seeing this on an international stage with with countries like China, for example, trying to influence other economies, other nations, other peoples by getting them into debt traps. Uh, how do you think about debt? And what do you think could be done about it? Because at least here in the States, we have a lot of debt. Yeah. Um, yeah, it sucks, right? Um, it really <laughs> sucks. I, I, really, I really resonate with that phrase, debt trap, right? That um, I think there are a lot of people, whether it's student loans or mortgage or other kinds of debt that feel trapped because it's like, well, I need to deal with this. This is forced on me as my top priority uh, and it's like if I'm if I'm taking care of the debt there's very little left over for my freedom and creativity and exploration and yeah being a digital nomad or whatever else um, so I totally hear that problem um, I think this is this is part 
this is part of what the solidarity is for. So at a really small scale, another group that I'm in, uh, it's called a savings pool. And with a savings pool, the idea is that um, uh, each of us can only maybe afford to save $10 a week, but let's put that in one bank account and have a system where uh, we can kind of take turns to use the money. So there's much more available, but for less time. So the first thing we did once we, uh, uh, we got 10 people together putting 10 bucks a week. And the first thing we did once we had a couple of grand there was to start cutting up people's credit cards. Um, so at least we get rid of that layer of debt where um, if you go through it sequentially and, and with that um, accountability of people you trust going, okay, I'm gonna change my habits around my spending. And to do that, I need you know 1500 bucks to get clear on my credit card and then I'm never gonna use the credit card again kind of thing. That was, that's been a really effective way to, to move some of it. Um, but it does, what comes to mind for the bigger scale is that it's a collective action problem. Um, you know, if I was saddled by a lot of student debt, I've got a little student debt, but nothing like the scale of my friends in the US. Uh, honestly, the two things that seem most um, viable would be uh, invest in crypto, hoping for a windfall, and two, get someone like Bernie Sanders in power who's going who's gonna to get rid of the student debts. I mean, uh, they seem like a more efficient use of energy than trying to pay off a hundred thousand dollar loan, you know. Um, but yeah, absolutely, it's it, it, it's trapping. And I don't know, maybe maybe again at the shallow level, maybe at least it's useful to have uh, peers where at least you feel you can talk about this stuff with, you know, to share the load and, and that experience and get some a little bit of distance from it and objectivity and, and compare tactics with someone. I would hope that would help a little. Um, but that feels like pretty cold comfort in the context of, yeah, this is my emotion, but then there's the actual debt that needs to be paid. Um, there is, I mean, the other thought that comes to mind on the collective action front is um, debt strikes. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of tying some threads together here. So one of the ways Occupy didn't fail was that it, 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 it was turned into compost and it's informed subsequent movements. And one of them is Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion has got its own problems for different reasons, but I think it did really learn from a very specifically from a bunch of things that Occupy did. Um, and now there's the, the latest kind of offshoot of Extinction Rebellion is uh, doing stuff around debt specifically. So basically recruiting people and saying, uh, let's collectively commit to not repay our debt. We're going on strike. We're not going to pay these credit cards or, or these loans. Um, and that is a very risky strategy, like the downside of that can be really bad, but the upside is really putting a panic into the whole economic system and opening up a conversation about justice and freedom and fairness and so on. Um, so I, re I really do see debt activism as a, yeah, a powerful leverage point for, for changing the material conditions of a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting solution. Um, I guess here in the United States, there's sort of more of a ethos of rugged individualism. And so I think it'd be a lot harder to convince Americans to even engage in that kind of activity. There's sort of a feeling that even if the debt is uh, onerous and unjust and, you know, was sort of forced on you by, uh, you know, not so, um, not so honest, uh, you know, marketing and things like that, um, that you still sort of still have an obligation to um, to pay your dues and, and sort of, you know, get rid of it somehow. So 
Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's it, especially in my generation with the millennials, it seems like there's uh, just a large portion of people who will never be able to get out of it. And so um, what you do in that situation, I think there does need to be something like a, 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 a inevitably a, a, some kind of debt jubilee of some kind. Um, and I don't know if that'll come in the form of a Bernie, of a Bernie Sanders type figure or an act of, of Congress or what, but uh, there have been debt jubilees throughout human history and they have been used precisely uh, when the internal social pressures and the contradictions created by the debt are so much that it actually threatens the stability of the system itself. So maybe Extinction Rebellion, I, I have a lot of problems with Extinction Rebellion, but maybe they are onto something there, at least about turning up the heat on these institutions. Um, uh, just, just on that uh, Jubilee word specifically, I think it's a really useful concept with a lot of history behind it. Um, during and after Occupy, there was this thing called the Rolling Jubilee, which was, in my view, like a, a basically just very clever uh, financial innovation, you know, kind of a way of people actually understanding how does our financial system work and how can we, in a sense, kind of hack it, you know, how can we put it to um, unexpected or to ends that it wasn't designed for. And they basically were taking small donations, using it to buy up bad debt, you know, debt that wasn't likely to get repaid and then writing off that debt for pennies on the dollar. And they managed to, to write off millions and millions. So um, there are people doing this kind of activism in the States. I think they call it Strike Debt now as the organization, strikedebt.org. Um, but yeah, it's obviously fraught with its own challenges, both on the legal sense and, and the cultural sense, as you say. Um, you are working on not just the businesses and organizations that you're a part of, but you're also working on uh, a, a, a book which is called Patterns of Decentralized Organizing, which is sort of in the process of being created right now. Do you want to talk a little bit about that work and uh, where it's headed? Um, I did a little chuckle. Uh, uh, I think it was my embarrassment of not having made much headway on that book for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, basically, what happened there was um, from my work with organizations, I came to the conclusion that if your aspiration is something more decentralized, less of a you know, traditional corporate structure that you can download off the internet or something, and, and something more, I don't know, um, experimental, non-hierarchical, innovative, decentralized. It, my conclusion has been basically that I haven't really found organizational structures that that can be turned into a blueprint, you know, that it's just a recipe, oh, you just do this, just use this structure and it works really well. Like I haven't really found those. Um, it seems like they need to be somehow designed into their local context, meaning it's really unique to the people, the culture, the values, the aspirations, the history, you know, there's, there's a lot of contextual factors that um, need to be considered and have a big influence on what the best organizational structure is for a unique group of people. Um, so, when it, so for example, you've got things like holacracy and holacracy is this like, that's a blueprint. It's like, here is how to run a non-hierarchical organization. There's a few of these. And I just really, don't, basically I just don't really buy it. Um, maybe it's a useful scaffolding and I don't wanna, you know, I've got no disrespect for people who use it. 
Um, but I don't buy it as far as like, this is going to be a system that's really going to work for people in the long term. I think, I think the ideal system is kind of locally grown. Um, and so the idea with the patterns is despite this thing of, um, yeah, there's no blueprint. I don't really have much confidence in the blueprint. I've also don't think that we have to go to the opposite extreme and, and always start from a blank page and encounter like, oh, wow, there's conflict. I've never thought of conflict. What are we gonna do? I will invent some kind of conflict system. It's like, you can basically count on the fact that when you put a group of people together, there will be conflicts and you don't have to wait for the conflict to arise. You can actually anticipate that problem and do some research and um, see how other people have solved that problem and, and try some of those things, you know? So the, the idea with the patterns are these kind of modular units uh, that you can remix into your own context. And, and, and in a way, it's kind of like the most frequently asked questions of decentralized organization. That's, that's, that's kind of what the book is. Um, and so I, I had a good run of developing the first draft of the content based on a bunch of workshops that I've been hosting. So the content is really well thought through from interaction with a lot of people. Um, and then I read a book called The Listening Society by Hansi Freinacht. Mm. And, and that, um, that kind of marked, it kind of blew my mind, basically. It, it marked my um, break point with this sort of, these days I would call it like the mainstream social justice left, you know, this kind of like, um, it's currently, I say mainstream because it's currently in the ascendant. There's like a really particular kind of leftist politics that's really taken a lot of space now where I was very much in the middle of that. Um, once I read that book, I kind of <laughs> departed ways and, and found out about this thing called metamodernism. And I found that framing really useful, yeah. but it's been such a substantial um, kind of uh, upgrade or at least <laughs> depending on your context, maybe a substantial downgrade to my thinking is such a change in my framing that I haven't fully integrated it yet to come back to the book and, and kind of rewrite it from this metamodern perspective. Um, so I think it's a useful resource and I published it even though it's not finished because people find it useful. Um, but it's not where the edge of my thinking is right now. And the edge of my thinking is it's really got much more focus on development, on, on, on the interior condition of people and on um, the way that people relate to each other. And it's less about, yeah, what's your decision-making protocol or who, who has the leadership role or who's the owner and much more about um, what kind of psychological and emotional baggage we bring to relationships. Um, and so the, uh, the, the kind of the most up-to-date output of that is this online course that we run on the hum.org um, rather than the book. So the, the book is kind of like useful, but a bit out of date and it's sitting there on my shoulder, like, come on, Rich, you've got to come back and push this to the next level. Mm. Well, I do hope that you'll get, get, get back on it at some point. I'm excited to see, uh, what will turn out, uh, you know, maybe you know, I, I can imagine that your thinking has changed since you began, began writing it. So uh, that can always sort of trip you up in the middle um, and, and I mean, may, maybe change the whole frame in which you were trying to express yourself. Um, I've got one more question here before I'm going to uh, ask you to uh, let people know where you can be found, uh, which is, in trying to get out of, you know, it's very attractive to me, this idea of getting out of coercion, getting out of relationships of domination. Um, but I feel like one of the more common objections as you sort of move up different levels of abstraction uh, within or different layers, really, uh, within society from the individual on up to 
larger collective organizations is that at some point, you know, there is a, if we're trying to be completely philosophically consistent, there is a, an acknowledgement of where the bodies are buried that has to be made. And so uh, there is a criticism of this notion, which is that, well, someone like yourself or someone like myself, you know, you're, you're from New Zealand originally, but you're living in Italy. I'm imagining that you're living quite peacefully in Italy, that you're not really having too many problems with Italy. It's a beautiful place. I'm very jealous that I'm not there right now. Uh, but I feel like one of the common criticisms of this sort of lifestyle or even this approach to thinking about things is that, well, the only reason you're able to even think about these ideas or to consider uh, organizing your life in this way is that you're protected. You're sort of insulated in a bubble from others. And there are these very uh, dark, uh, coercive, domineering, uh, even downright, uh, you could say, evil aspects of human nature. Uh, and the only reason why, you know, people like myself, people like yourself are able to sit around on podcasts all day and talk about, um, you know, how do we get out of domination is because of the fact that these forces are being sort of kept at bay and the way that they're being kept at bay is by uh, a countervailing level of violence and domination. How do you square that circle? Yeah, it's a really good question too. Um, it's so easy to ignore that, eh? You know, like you say that um, there's a huge amount of violence being perpetrated on a daily basis to create this bubble of peace around me. You know, just like if we just look at the, the border system and the way that um, if your passport's the right color, then yeah, come to Italy. And if right. not, then it's like, well, you might die in the Mediterranean trying to get here. Um, and and the, some of the people that are in Italy that have come across the Mediterranean without the right passport, like, uh, yeah, the, the, the level of disrespect that they face and not just disrespect, but um, yeah, you know, outright harm that they face because of this border system. Um, it's very easy to just tune out, you know, and just... Um, enjoy the good life and yeah, do this intellectualizing and ooh, a new kind of cheese or whatever. Um, my own approach is basically, I mean, I do, I do think it's really important, this concept that there are only so many fucks you can give, you know, like that, that meaning we all have a limited capacity for care. So uh, there is a real risk of trying to care about everyone and everything all the time. And it doesn't, doesn't work as far as I know. Um, Maybe there's some kind of spiritual plane that you can reach where you can manage to care for everyone. But I think it really is important to be able to draw a line and say, this is what I'm going to take some responsibility for. This is where I'm really going to be considering. This is where I'm going to put my focused attention in a sustained way and, and to learn what is my capacity to make a difference and, and to, um, yeah, take responsibility and, and, and be consistent and commit to, to making a positive contribution. I think that's important for people to do that, to find what is their piece of the puzzle to hold on to. And that's what I was trying to get at with the meaningful work thing as well, is like understanding what's my what's my instrument in the orchestra. Um, and for my own conclusion that I've got to on that, it's basically that many of the organizations that are, or even not even formal organizations, but networks, many of the groups of people that are most active in creating a more just and less domineering world, they choose to organize in a less hierarchical way. 
So right now uh, I'm working with an organization that is helping people get access to abortions in countries where it's illegal. And they have chosen a non-hierarchical organizing structure. They're having a lot of problems, you know? Um, and so I've, I've chosen that my role is basically to help these organizations to um, fail less often and to hopefully fail for new reasons instead of always failing for the same reasons over and over again. Um, and to be that, um, I, I kind of sometimes feel like a nomad with some knowledge that I've picked up from a lot of places. And then I get to go to a new place and say, hey, this is what I saw in Barcelona. This is what I saw in Stockholm. Um, so that that's how I answer the question for myself is, is doing everything that I can well, not even, no, it's not even that. It's not even everything I can. It's like finding what is a balance that I can maintain. So some of that is, um, yeah, playing my guitar or watching Netflix. And some of it is um, working with clients that can pay a decent rate so that I have some spare time that I can afford to donate my time to other organizations that are doing stuff um, and, and help them with that part of the system that I feel like I can make a, a unique contribution to. And, and, my hope, uh, maybe it's naive, but my hope is that if there's a critical mass of people basically playing their instrument, looking after their unique contribution, well, that may be enough to cultivate a really healthy kind of society. Um, but if it's not enough, at least I can die with some sense of integrity, you know, some sense of satisfaction with, I did my part and I tried to make a positive contribution. And that's that's about as far as I get to. Yeah, well, uh, we're all we're all human beings, so we're all necessarily limited um, by our by our nature and and by our being. So everyone, just you know, you do what you can. All right, Richard. Well, uh, this has been a pleasure, but we are running out of time here. Um, so before I let you go, where can people find you? Uh, where should people go if they want to hear more about you, more of your thoughts? What do you find out what, about what you're doing? Um, I'm, I did this thing where I go out in public and do podcasts and stuff and kind of invite a large audience. And then when people reach out to me, I'm like, Oh God, too many people. And, um, it's not a very healthy pattern. So don't email me, um, is the answer. Um, but I am really active on Twitter. That's kind of like the easiest place to interact with me is on Twitter. Um, my handle is rich decibels. And from there, you'll also see there's a bunch of links. So yeah, I mentioned the online course that we're running with the hum. Um, the half-finished book is, is on my Twitter, my Substack. So every couple of months I put out a newsletter, which is mostly um, just a sample of the interesting podcasts that I'm listening to. A lot of them are kind of in this meta-modern political space, some of them about organizing. Um, and then occasionally I drop an article like I did last time, which is, uh, yeah, my gentle and loving critique of the way that politics is being done on the left. Um, and that will be the place where you can spider out until the other links too. So on my personal website, you'll find a bunch of podcasts that I've done and interviews on all sorts of different topics. And I've written an awful lot. So yeah, you can basically go in through Twitter and then start following the links if you're interested in my way of thinking. Great. Well, thank you so much. It was, this has been awesome. It's my pleasure. Thanks for interviewing me.